Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's episode, I am going to read you part of a story that is coming out in my new book called Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime. And this book comes out on March 11th. And I wanted to tell you a little bit of the history background of me finding this story and tell you a portion of it, but you'll have to read the book and the story in the book to get the full story about it. But I'll tell you enough to tantalize you a little bit today and tell you a little bit of the history of the area where this this is set. And this is set in Colon, Michigan, over in St. Joseph County. So come along and join me, and we're going to get into this fascinating tale, which in the book is entitled The Ghost of Fairhands Bridge. Now, previously on this podcast, I have covered a episode on the history of Colon, Michigan, very early on in season one. Uh, Colon, Michigan was founded by some brothers with the last name of Shellhouse around 1832, and they were the ones to originally plat the village, although the recorded plat didn't happen until 1844. They came from Ohio. And uh, one, the first brother came from Ohio. Uh, his name was Roswell Shellhouse. And he arrived there in 1829, and he built his first log house. And it contained two rooms, and it was served as a hotel for travelers at that time. And he remained in the area until 1838 when he left for Illinois. But he had other brothers. There was uh, Loracy Shellhouse, Martin Shellhouse, and George Shellhouse, and they all located in that community and became leaders of the community of Colon, Michigan. Uh, the story of how he named it Colon uh, says that he and his brother were trying to come up with a decision on a name, and they went to the dictionary and flipped it, and they landed their finger on the word Colon, and they said, hey, that's the name we're going to choose. It wasn't a very complicated uh, process, as you might think. And they landed on the punctuation definition of Colon, if anybody out there... Uh, is curious about that. <laughs> so there's a river near Colon, Michigan, and it's called the Swan River. And that was one of the first things they did was dam the river and build a sawmill. And they established a community. Uh, today, historically, Colon, Michigan is more known as being the magic capital of the world because so many magicians have come from the community. But it has been the home for many other types of businesses as well, including a distillery at one point. But the subject of this story is Fairhands Bridge, which was built in 1840, and it was the first bridge in that area. And it was built over the St. Joseph River. And it was named Fairhands Bridge because the neighbors were named Fairhand, and they ceded some of the land in which... um, became used for the road and the bridge that was built there. And so that built bridge was built in 1840. I think a second bridge was rebuilt in 1868, which is the one that I'd found in my book at the time when I was doing research. And the location of the bridge was a very picturesque spot on the St. Joseph River. And there was no railroad in Colon, Michigan at this time. And it was a fixed arch-type bridge 
with steel rods that supported the roadbed. And it was the main passage in this area for about one and a half miles north of Colon. Now, presently, in present day, that bridge no longer exists. It was uh, torn down and rebuilt by a more modern bridge in 1965. But there still is a bridge at that location. So the incident that happened at Fairhands Bridge occurred on the evening of October 12th, 1893. And it begins with a lady that lived near the bridge, and her name was Mrs. Kemmerling. And she had a farm that was adjacent to the river. And she was out chasing her cows near the bridge that night. And for some reason, the cows had failed to come back that evening when she'd let them out, so she had to go out in search of them and look, listen for them in the darkness and hear the tinkle of their bells, which she couldn't hear, so she had to go searching for the cows. And it took her quite some time to round them up and get them to come back across the bridge back into her field. It was probably about a half past eight at night when she finally drove her cows back across the bridge, getting them back into her stable and pen area. About 15 minutes later, when she'd actually begun milking her cows, she heard four gunshots ring out in the darkness. Now, she dismissed it at that point in time, but she remembers distinctly hearing that. And earlier in the evening, she had seen people traveling on the road, which I'll get to in a minute. But the next morning, on Friday, October 13th, a body was found floating in the St. Joseph River below Fairhands Bridge. It was half hidden beneath the weeds, and the body was that of a man. And he was drifting in about four feet of water, and he was in a sitting position. Nearby on the bridge, a revolver was found with four empty chambers, and it would be hours before anyone could identify who the man was. The coroner was called and arrived on the scene, as well as Sheriff James Manbeck. And the body was pulled from the river and laid on the bridge. And upon examination, it was discovered when the shirt was removed that the man had been shot four times in the left side of his body near his heart. Now, they determined that this shooting had to have happened before he was thrown in the river based on where the gun was found, which was on the bridge itself. Soon after, a neighbor came by, as there were many curious neighbors when a body is found in those days, as to be expected, and identified the man as Willard Johnson. So right at the beginning, the sheriff determined that this had to have been a homicide as opposed to a suicide, because it was really not realistic that he would have shot himself four times in the side, dropped the gun, and then jumped into the river in a seated position. It was more likely that somebody shot him and dumped his body into the river. Now, Willard Johnson was a well-known young man in the area, and he had a family. He had a young wife and a young daughter that was just a toddler. So when the body was identified, the crowd that had gathered around, a hush kind of fell over the crowd. And finally, a local farmer stepped up. And this is what he said to the crowd. And this is, quote, exactly what I was able to find from the accounts of witnesses. He said, friends and neighbors, many of us have known Johnson for years, and not one of us has ever heard of him doing an evil deed. He was everybody's friend and would rather cut off his right hand than harm a human being. 
His dead body lies before you. He has been murdered, killed by a cowardly assassin. For what purpose? I do not know, and I do not care. He is dead, and the voices of his neighbors cry out for vengeance. We must find his murderer, and when we do, we'll deal with him as he has dealt with poor Willard. And the members of the crowd then cried out, You are right. We will lynch him. So after the words of this old man were said, it kind of had a magical effect on the people that were present. And they all scattered and returned within a few minutes, carrying all kinds of weapons from old-fashioned horse pistols to the latest revolvers. Some carried pitchforks. And they all headed in different directions after they regathered at the bridge. And some went east, some went north, south, and west. And in short, they were scouring the woods and fields in search of any kind of a trail of the murderer in hopes that they would come upon him or her or whoever it was and do some sort of uh, justice on them in, in their mind. Meanwhile, the sheriff appointed Deputy Ralph G. Dock to be in charge of the investigation of the homicide. And the reason he picked Deputy Dock is Deputy Dock had been a member of the American Detective Agency and had done training on how to conduct an investigation. And Deputy Dock's first conclusion that one could rule out suicide, as the sheriff had originally determined. Uh, he deemed it impossible that Johnson could have shot himself four times in the side and then jumped off as the gun had been found on the top of the bridge. So Deputy Dock was able to measure wagon tracks that had been in the mud that approached the bridge. And he also determined quickly after searching Willard's body was that the object of the crime was not robbery, but murder as he found about $27.36 inside his pockets, along with a silver watch. And $27 at that time was a fair amount of money uh, for someone to have in their pocket. And also, knowing a little bit about Willard Johnson was that he was not known to be a very quarrelsome man, and so it was very unlikely that he had gotten into a fight with anybody willingly. But the whole circumstances of the case were a bit perplexing. Here we have the body of Willard in the river in a sitting position. The gun is left at the top of the bridge. There's no sign of a wagon or horses or anything like that. There are wagon tracks leading up to the bridge. Were they the wagon that uh, Johnson was traveling in? And, and so forth. So this is how the sheriff and the deputy began searching and investigating this crime. There's a lot of backstory about this incident and this case. And I originally discovered this story searching through old newspapers of St. Joseph County. And I came across snippets of the story and started piecing them together, clipping them, throwing them into a file, trying to decide if there I could really fish out the entire story in this case. And in doing some Deep diving into old newspapers, I was able to piece together part of the story, and I began to write it based on what I was able to find. And originally, it was going to be a very short story because I had limited information on it. I only had the story of what happened later on. Quite often, that's all you're going to find, you know, on this type of a story. And then in my deep diving of information, I came across a written biography by one of the detectives 
that stepped in to help Deputy Doc in this investigation. And he was from another detective agency that was brought in to the crime scene investigation. And he wrote a bio on the whole investigation, which I was able to borrow a lot of details from about the backstory. Now, this story's quite in-depth in the book. It's one of the larger stories in the book. And it will probably leave you pondering it for a while. It certainly still has me pondering it because at the very beginning of the story, it's very clear who the murderer obviously had to have been. And then as the story progresses, becomes something different because it could possibly be somebody else. And it could be a couple of other suspects. And so I kind of leave it at that based on all of the investigation. And ultimately... What happened was, is Willard had a brother-in-law, and Willard had married a young lady that was at a farm in Colon, Michigan, and her last name was Schwartz. And she got along, he got along great with the parents, and he married the young lady. The brother had been away when the sister got married. He'd been out doing what they called tramping during that time in history. He was out jumping on railroads, you know, sleeping in houses, doing odd jobs, and traveling around on the railroad. And when he kind of burned out on that after a couple of years, he came home and discovered that his younger sister had married this guy named Willard Johnson. And although the parents liked Willard, he was a respectable, hardworking farmer. They had brought him in and let him have some of the land, and he was working the land. This brother did not like the fact that his sister was married, essentially, and took a disliking to Willard Johnson and started to create conflict with him. And it continued to the point where he essentially separated the two and Willard pulled out and bought his own farm in another portion of the county in Burr Oak. And his wife became ill during this period. And the brother-in-law went to medical school all of a sudden and decided that he was a doctor. Even though he hadn't really graduated medical school, he came back and and convinced the family that he was a medical doctor and was going to take up the care of his sister. And he required that the sister stay at the family farm. And so Willard was traveling from Burr Oak to Colon, Michigan. And then the brother-in-law, because he was quote-unquote caring for the sister, handed Willard a bill and ensued him in the court when he refused to pay the bill and got a judgment against him and refused to let him see his wife until the bill was paid. And and he wouldn't let him see his daughter. So this whole family dynamic issue was going on. And the night of this incident, Willard had driven his wagon several miles from his farm in Burr Oak to go visit the family over in Colon, and he was trying to see his wife and daughter. And he wanted to see if he could talk to this brother-in-law and make a partial payment and work out a payment plan to settle the debt and just, you know, mend mend the fences with him, you might say. Uh, But the brother-in-law was not having anything to do with it. He wanted the bill paid in full or nothing at all, and he refused to let him see his wife. So Willard wasn't a very um, aggressive man. He wasn't willing to stand up and fight this guy. He'd fought him before, got tired of it. And so he just sadly, in despair, rode all the way back 
or started heading home to Burr Oak. And along his return trip, he crossed over Fairhands Bridge and his body was found the next morning. So where he was murdered, I was able to determine that it was not at Fairhands Bridge, but it was just a little bit before. And that was one of the things the detectives discovered in their investigation. And then his body was brought to Fairhands Bridge and dumped. And probably in the process of dumping it, the pistol or the revolver fell out and they it was dark and they just left it on the bridge and rode off. So obviously the number one suspect was the brother-in-law. And there were even witnesses that saw him out that evening riding a wagon away from that location. And the horses were sweaty. And there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that was there to convict him. And there's the whole story of the investigation in the book. And they do indeed get a conviction against him. And he goes to prison. And then a year after he's in prison, the family approaches another detective um, to take up the investigation because they're convinced that he didn't do it. And that detective looks at the facts and he concludes that everybody rushed the judgment and perhaps maybe he wasn't the one that did the crime. And he thinks that there's other suspects and that there were a lot of other suspects that were not investigated based on eyewitnesses' accounts that evening. There had been eyewitness accounts of a man on a white horse being seen on the bridge that evening. And there was other eyewitness accounts of um, another type of wagon, I believe it was. And so they, he was this, this other sheriff that looked at the case was convinced there was a, there's somebody else that was involved in the crime. And he proceeds to continue to investigate the crime, even though there's already a conviction and somebody serving time in prison on it. And then he tracks down a suspect that had been in the St. Joseph area in the prior weeks. He had been riding a white horse, and he had been suspected of doing nefarious things. He was out circulating for advance money for a circus that never was to come, and he was hustling people for advertising and then leaving town. And then, of course, the circus never came. So he was kind of a swindler that had come through the town. And Sheriff Siekel, who was the name of the sheriff that was doing this investigation, decided to try to track this guy down and find out more information. And he ended up tracking him down over in Illinois. And they he had the sheriff over there bring him in for questioning. And they, they interrogated this guy um, for hours and basically terrified him to the point where he would have confessed to anything. Uh, but ultimately, it was determined that he wasn't even in the area the night the murder happened. He had been in a different state. He'd been over in Indiana or Illinois, and he was cleared. Uh, but they had so traumatized him in the questioning and interrogation of him, he, the guy has a heart attack right after they release him. And so that was an interesting part of the story. And as far as I was able to determine, the man was transferred to a hospital and did recover from the heart attack. But uh, So that was kind of a setback in the investigation. The sheriff believed that he had actually found the real killer, and it turned out that guy wasn't even in the area, even though he would have, been a, he would have fit the profile. So he continues to investigate, and three years after the murder, a tramp over in the South Haven area in August of 1896, is around a campfire with some other tramps, and he confesses to a crime that he committed over in Colon, Michigan. And he says that he was feeling his conscious about it and really 
was feeling bad that he needed to confess about this crime. And he details murdering Willard Johnson over in Colon, Michigan, on a bridge. And so the tramps around the fireplace didn't necessarily believe him. They thought he was just telling a tall tale. But the next day, one of the tramps started thinking about it and decided to go in and talk to the sheriff that was over in South Haven. And so he did. And once he told the story to the sheriff, the sheriff went and rounded up this other tramp, brought him in, and the tramp actually confessed. And so they reached out to Sheriff Siegel over in St. Joseph, and he rode over to South Haven to take this man's confession, and he did. He confessed to the whole crime and swiftly was taken and charged with murder of Willard Johnson and um, waived any right to a trial, and he went straight to Jackson Prison, and the other man was eventually released. So it's a crazy story. There's a lot of detail in the book, and it is a story that I will be talking in public about live down at the Colon Library on Tuesday, March 19th at uh, 6 p.m., and the library in Colon, Michigan is 128 South Blackstone Avenue. I've been invited down there to uh, do a speaking engagement and a book signing. And my book, of course, comes out on March 11th. Now, you can pre-order the book if you'd like. Go to michaeldelaware.com. And right on the front page, there is a big button where you can click and pre-order right now. And I encourage you to do so because it helps support the work that I'm doing here. It will enable me to uh, get a prediction on how many books to pre-order myself. And... uh, gives me a better discount for purchasing more books for my upcoming book tour. So if you plan to get a copy of the book already, I will send you a signed copy as soon as the book is released from my stock of books if you pre-order now. So once again, just go to michaeldelaware.com. And this is a story within a collection of 17 stories that are in the book. Now, why is it called The Ghost of Fairhands Bridge? That is also part of the mystery of the book that you will hear the tale of why it's called the ghost of Fairhands Bridge and not why I didn't entitle it the murder at Fairhands Bridge or something else. So that is interesting uh, that I found out much later on after this was all done. So there's a very fascinating history of the different families in Colon, Michigan and the different twists and turns of the investigation and how The investigators were brought in from different areas to help out Deputy Doc. There were two other investigators that were brought in, and um, one of them wrote a book about the whole story, but he ends it with the first conviction and considers that he got the right guy. And then I continued to research the story, and I found out the history of Sheriff Seekell. His name was S-E-E-K-E-L-L, and he was the one that continued the investigation after the first conviction at the request of the family. And he ended up finding somebody else to confess to the crime. Now, whether this individual, this tramp that confessed, this is where it becomes quite a twist of the tale. The tramp confesses. Now, was he given some money from the family in order to do this? Was this tramp somebody that the brother-in-law had tramped around with? when he was traveling around the country years before, or the family had tracked down and said, we'll give you a stipend of money um, for your own family if you will confess to this crime and uh, help 
I mean, anything is possible. Maybe that guy had uh, no fear of going to prison for a crime because somebody else that he cared about was going to be taken care of financially. There's all sorts of uh, scenarios that you can spin in your head about this. And maybe neither man committed the crime. Maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it was the mysterious white horse rider on the bridge that evening that was never identified. And so there's a lot of layers to this case that makes it quite interesting. Um, But it took place in 1893, and the second conviction occurred in 1896. And the first conviction was overturned shortly after that, and the man was released from prison. And both men were sent to the Jackson State Penitentiary at Michigan State Prison. So it's a fascinating tale. And once again, it is one of the stories profiled in my upcoming book. So I hope that you will get a copy and read it. Once again, it's at michaeldelaware.com. And you can also send me a message on that website. That's a contact form on there. I'd love to hear from you. I am always happy to hear from my listeners. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And of course, if you're out there on social media, be sure to follow my page on Facebook, which is Michael Delaware Author. And also, if you're on Instagram, you can find me at Michigan History Guy. And I'm relatively new to Instagram. I have managed another page on Instagram for a couple of years for another organization. But it was only recently that I decided to put one up for myself personally uh, to help promote my books and promote the work that I'm doing in the history area because I found that there are a lot of people that are using that form of social media now and moving away from Facebook, or at least there's a percentage of them. A lot of folks know me from Nextdoor as well, and they reach out to me from contacts on Nextdoor. So I, I use Nextdoor and Facebook a lot, and I'm just now moving into Instagram. I've done a little bit of Twitter, but not much. Twitter is much more of a broad audience all over the world, and it doesn't seem to fit local uh, promotions for this type of work that I do very much. So I don't uh, get on Twitter, which is now known as X, very much anymore. And I am also on LinkedIn, but I don't usually access that very often either. I have not found it works for what I'm doing. So if you really want to reach out to me, find me at Michael Delaware Author. I usually uh, check those messages um, daily, as well as uh, Instagram. You can send me a contact message through there if you want. But ideally, people will email me through my website, and I will respond through email, because I'm usually always on my email. So that's the best ways to reach out to me if you want to get a hold of me. And of course, once again, check out my calendar and come see me at some of the upcoming speaking events and shows that I'm going to be at in March and April. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday, we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 